अखंडम सच्चिदानंदम अवांगमनसगोचरम आत्मानम अखिलाधारम आश्रये भीष्ट सिद्धये गुड इवनिंग एंड नमस्ते एवरीबॉडी वी आर स्टडीइंग वेदांत सारा एंड इन दैट वी वर ऑन टेक्स्ट नंबर 50 वी हैव डन अप टू टेक्स्ट नंबर 50 So what have we got so far? We have got our main players in uh, setting up the system of Vedanta. The ultimate reality, which is very simple in Vedanta, Brahman, the absolute existence, consciousness, place, non-dual. So which is, makes it very simple for us. Non-dual means there's nothing apart from that. But then now you have to explain everything, all of this. How do you explain that? So for that, the next player that was introduced was Maya. and uh, maya is nothing apart from brahman because it's not real it's uh, it's an appearance in brahman so it's not apart from brahman therefore brahman still remains non dual it's not two it's not brahman and maya it's brahman but maya for to explain what we are experiencing now maya and then brahman limited by maya becomes the god of this universe um, which is names are ishwara Uh, names are saguna brahman and so on multiple names were given maya has a total aspect and individual aspect so if taken in an individual aspect brahman through what i mean by individual aspect is just you can think think of it very simply as a tiny bit of maya a little bit of maya one tiny aspect of maya one tiny little power of maya uh, remember the example of the cobra with all the poison in its mouth and only a little bit of the poison so um brahman through the individual aspect of maya becomes an individual sentient being like us so now we have brahman maya god individual sentient beings us jivas in in sanskrit brahman maya ishwara jiva okay and remember when you say us it does not mean us in all our glory you know bodies and minds and identities no it just means us in a very seed form what we experience of ourselves in deep sleep but that's also interesting because we already have something which we can latch on to because deep sleep we have all experienced we know what they mean by deep sleep so already we have been introduced some an element has been introduced which uh, tallies with our experience when you're talking about brahman and maya and god these are all theoretical theological con- uh, you know constructs for us but when you say individual sentient being we'd like to ask what exactly would you mean by individual sentient being i am an individual sentient being so what about me is it talking about it's talking about you it's talking about us in our deep sleep state individualized but in a very potential state nothing has happened yet all right now next step maya is said to have two functions two capacities two act- activities so to say one of veiling and one of projecting avarana vikshepa avarana means veiling and vikshepa means projecting remember that's a rough translation vikshepa also could mean distorting vikshepa means distortion or disturbance um which is interesting in a certain sense because um what maya does basically is it it distorts brahman it presents the eternal as the non-eternal it presents the one 
as the many. It presents the unlimited as the limited. It presents the pure subject as an object. Many objects, all limited, the unchanging as the changing, all changing, all subject to change. It presents which is eternal bliss into a world of um, suffering, pleasure and pain, Sukha Dukkha. Ananda is projected as Sukha Dukkha. So it distorts. Or as Swami Vivekananda put it, this world is the wreckage of the infinite on the shores of time, space and causation. This world, this universe is the wreckage of the infinite on the shores of time, space and causation. And to which I would add the humble footnote, not a real wreckage, don't worry. The ship of Brahman is not really wrecked. It just looks like that from our perspective. All right. So, veiling power, projecting power. Let's go. Text number 51. Asya jnanasya avarana vikshepa namakam asti shakti dvayam. This ignorance has two powers. The power of concealment and the power of projection. Um, this ignorance, asya jnanasya, which ignorance? Not our day-to-day uh, -day ignorance, I don't know this or I don't know that. It's the, uh, the primal ignorance, the, the power of Brahman, this maya. This maya has two, two aspects. But you could also take it, you know, understand it by looking at our ordinary ignorance, the ignorance of the rope. When you see uh, something in the dark, you don't know what it is. It's actually a rope, but we don't know what it is. This, uh, uh, you know, th this ignorance of the rope has two powers. One is it prevents us from seeing the rope as it is and also projects the rope, distorts the rope into something what it is not, maybe a snake, for example. So notice, even in this very common uh, example, it has two powers. Power of concealing the reality and power of distorting the reality. Power of hiding the rope and power of projecting the rope as something else like a snake. Similarly, um, ajnana in ignorance or maya has the power of concealing reality from us that we are Brahman, concealed. This world, whatever we experience is Brahman, concealed. We don't see it at all. And it also has the power of distorting Brahman and projecting it as this. All right. So these are the two powers, Avarana Shakti, Vikshepa Shakti. Notice one more thing here. The, it is the veiling power, the Avarana Shakti, which is our problem. That we do not know our real nature, that's our problem. That I do not know I'm Brahman, that's our problem. You know, the world is a problem. No, the world is not a problem. Consider the case of enlightened persons, Jivan Muktas, enlightened beings. They seem to be perfectly happy inhabiting a body and in a, being in this world with all of us. Which means they do experience the world. They do experience Brahman as this world. So the projecting power of Maya is not really a problem for them. I'll repeat that. Of the two powers of Maya, the hiding power and the projecting power, Avarana Shakti and Vikshepa Shakti, the real villain of the piece is the Avrana Shakti, which hides reality from us. And the 
other one which projects Brahman as this world and as bodies and minds, that is ultimately not a problem. For once a person has realized that, that we are Brahman, uh, once one is enlightened, after that also the body will appear due to you know, what is called the um, you know, lesha jnana or the, the remnant of karma. So that the body will appear, the world will continue to appear. And that is not experienced as a problem for, for that enlightened being. They are perfectly all right with it, which means that this projected world, body and mind are really not problems. It is, uh, samsa, the world appearance is really not a problem. As long as it is recognized as an appearance, as long as the reality is recognized that I am Brahman and all this is nothing other than Brahman. Not recognizing the reality, then it's a problem. See, the movie is not a problem. Even the worst of tragedies, which can even make you cry, that's also not a problem, as long as you recognize it's a movie. You can even appreciate something like, what was that cinema about the Holocaust? Schindler's List. A terrible, terrible thing. And then, but why do you go to see it? Why do you give it Oscar awards? Because it's a movie. It's about something real, but uh, the, that thing itself is, is a movie. And therefore, you can see the aesthetic aspect of it. You can even enjoy it after a fashion, knowing it's a movie. If, if it was not known as a movie, it would be a horrible thing. Um, so the projection of the movie is not a problem. It is the reality mistakenly accorded to, to the movie that is a problem. So we can enjoy the movie. I remember when I was a kid, I saw the Star Wars movie in the late 70s when it was released, my parents took me and my younger brother to see the movie. And I was thrilled until my brother started bawling. He was a baby, so he got scared with all the spaceships and the, all the monsters and everything started bawling. And we got a lot of dirty looks from the people around us. I barely remember this, but I just remember the being res deeply resentful of my brother because we had to leave the cinema hall. <laughs> my parents had to take us outside. Now, what is the problem? I was old enough to see that it's a movie and thrilled about it. My brother was not old enough to see it's a movie. He was scared by it. That's the difference. That's all, that's all, all the difference that is. We both saw the same thing, but the uh, experience was entirely different. The huge difference was made by the sense of unreality of what I was seeing. Uh, then I could enjoy it as an aesthetic experience. Whereas the baby couldn't. The baby saw it as something scary, sounds and terrifying pictures and all. It was really scary for the child. I have to add this also. It is too crude to say that we in ignorance, we are subject to the veiling power of Maya and the projecting power of Maya, whereas the enlightened person is not subject to the veiling power of Maya and is subject to the is subject to the projecting power of Maya. No, that's also a little too crude because the enlightened person is also not subject to the projecting power of Maya. The difference is this. For the enlightened person, there is no veiling. Brahman is absolutely obvious. And there is no projection also. Although the person sees what we are seeing, the person knows without any doubt that it is Brahman and Brahman alone. When we are seeing the projecting power of Maya, we say 
it is really a table, a chair, a man, a woman, good and bad. And that's it for us, samsara. But that's not how the enlightened person sees. With the eyes, they see the same thing. With the ears, they hear the same sounds. But they see it as Brahman alone appearing in all these ways. So it's not quite true to say that the enlightened person is, continues to remain subjected to the projecting power or the distorting power of Maya. Maya does not distort for the enlightened being. Although they keep seeing this world. There's so many misconceptions. Uh, you know, so, somebody shared a paper with me. So this um, scholar, I think in Oxford University or something, good paper comparing uh, Kashmiri Shaivism and Advaita Vedanta. Um, so there was about three pages comparing enlightenment, Kashmiri Shaivism and Advaita Vedanta. And this lady uh, has done a good job, but totally wrong. And in three pages, I found six mistakes. Most of the mistakes come from this wrong idea of Advaita Vedanta. So for example, here's the mistake. So she writes that, uh, and she's not alone. There are any number of eminent uh, professors who suffer under these, um, uh, you know, like kindergarten uh, errors about Advaita. According to Advaita Vedanta, Shankara says the world is false. And upon enlightenment, you would of course realize that the world is false and Brahman is true. But isn't the body, the personality, isn't it part of the world? So if this is unreal, how could an enlightened person become, could still go on living in the world? How could there still be an enlightened, living while enlightened, Jivan Mukta? It's a false world, so it should go away. What do you mean it should go away? You're making a big mistake here. They are thinking in terms of something like the snake and the rope. Once you see the rope, the snake has gone. But that's just one example. There are many examples. What about the mirage? What about the blue sky? After you realize that the sky is not blue, and you look up, what do you see? You still see the blue sky. You know it's not blue. What about the mirage? You realize it's not water. But Swami Vivekananda had this experience in Rajasthan. He rushed towards it because he was thirsty and he saw it was not water, just a mirage. Then he started walking. Then importantly, he looks back and he sees the same appearance of water. But now the difference is he knows it's not water. He knows it's a mirage. Exactly like that enlightenment, Jivan Mukti, living after enlightenment is possible. Because nowhere in Advaita is it said that the world appearance will go away. Brahman will continue to appear as long as you have eyes, you will see. I mean, it's ridiculous to say that uh, after enlightenment, with, with the enlightened person having eyes will become blind and having ears will become deaf. No, the enlightened person clearly sees and hears. And, uh, so, so this wrong conception that uh, Advaita Vedanta says world is unreal. So after realization, the world should go away. Only Brahman will remain. And yet, how is it that the enlightened person is walking around, talking, giving Vedanta talks, going for begging for food, um, and is debating with the dualists and all? So it's, it's all not, not very logical. That's not, it's not a problem with the system. It's a, it's a very simple and deep error in your understanding. And every, so I can give that paper to you as an assignment and you can um, explain each of the problems, each of those, I, I sort of underlined, highlighted those areas. So the appearance, world appearance continues, but it is recognized as an appearance. It's like saying, the error is like saying, oh, the movie is not real. The screen is real. So the movie should stop. 
Of course not. How boring that would be. Movie should continue and you will enjoy it as a movie. The world appearance continues and you enjoy it as a world appearance. Jivan Mukti is entirely possible uh, in uh, Advaita Vedanta. In fact, the opposite can be argued. Jivan Mukti and enlightened while living is not possible in dualistic religion. There's a very good reason why dualistic religions do not admit perfection in the world. Whether it is uh, Dvaita Vedanta or if it is, uh, you know, the Vaishnavite theologies or Christianity or Islam, you cannot have perfection before you go to, you know, before you die. It, perfection is possible only in heaven, not here. And that's logical because you can't, you can't be. And this is a lower and fallen state because this, they take this to be real. Okay. Um, now. He will first talk about the veiling power and then the projecting power. So two powers, veiling power and projecting power. That's the enlightened person. But we are, we are back to our problem that we see a real world. And how is that? First, the veiling power. Text number 52. Avarana shakti stavad alpopi megho aneka yojanayatam aditya mandalam avaloka itri ನಯನಪಥಪಿಧಾಯಕತೆಯಾಚ್ಛಾದಯತೀವಾಚ್ಛಾದಯತೀವಾಮರ್ಥ್ಯಂತ Translation. Just as a small patch of cloud by obstructing the vision of the true of the observer conceals as it were the solar disk extending over many miles. Similarly, ignorance, though limited by nature, yet obstructing the intellect of the observer conceals as it were the self which is unlimited and not subject to transmigration. Such a power, such a power is this power of concealment. It is thus said, as the sun appears covered by a cloud and bedimmed to a very ignorant person whose vision is obscured by the cloud, so also that which to the unenlightened appears to be in bondage is my real nature, the self eternal knowledge. Astamalaka 10. All right. So what is said here? The basic idea. Avarana Shakti Tavad. The veiling power is. What is it? It, uh, it has the capacity of obscuring or hiding the real self. Unlimited real self. What is the real self? Um, Atmanam, the self, which is the ultimate reality. Aparichinnam, unlimited. Asamsarinam, not subject to transmigration in samsara. That means not subject to birth and death, aging, old age and disease, all of that. Not subject to any of this. Unlimited existence, consciousness, place. That ultimate reality. It is hidden. Hidden from whom? From us. Where, what would we, where would we know it if it were not hidden? Buddhi, in our understanding. Whose understanding? Avalokayetri buddhi. To, to the, the, the knower, us, the inquirer. In our case, it is hidden from our understanding. Not from our eyes, from our understanding. 
um, it is covered as it were. Now one may ask, how is this, how is this limited ignorance able to cover your precious, all-powerful, absolute Brahman? How is a little figment of uh, ignorance, darkness in the mind, able to cover infinite existence, consciousness, bliss? That sounds ridiculous. He says, no, it's not ridiculous, actually. It's like saying, clouds covered the sun. You know, think about it, that's actually a ridiculous assertion. The sun is enormous, is blazing forth far bigger than the entire world, far, far bigger than the entire earth itself. How can a few wisps of water vapor floating around in the sky cover the sun, obscure the sun? Because it can, because it doesn't have to obscure the sun. It All it has to do is to prevent you from seeing the sun. It has to just block our vision. It doesn't have to cover the, the reality of the sun. The whole disk of the sun doesn't have to be covered by clouds. And it's impossible. It can't be. There's no question of that. But our vision, it's sufficient if our eyes are obstructed from seeing the sun. That's as good as covering up the sun. Similarly, ignorance in the mind prevents the mind itself from realizing its true nature, which is Brahman. It doesn't really have to cover up Brahman or do anything to Brahman. So the idea that how can ignorance, maya, or whatever it is, didn't you say it's unreal? How can an unreal maya cover up the reality? It doesn't have to. It doesn't have to. All it has to do is whatever is going to come next, minds, intellects, our individual body, mind, this person which is going to come be produced next, that person has to be obstructed from understanding the ultimate reality. That's all. And that ignorance can do very well. Because it's just obscuring our vision, our understanding of our real nature. That's it. So if you look at the text itself, Avarna Shakti Tavad. So in this context, veiling power is what? Megho Aneka Yojanata Ayatam Aditya Mandalam. The Aneka Yojana, the vast, many, many um, millions of miles uh, across the disk of the sun. Um, it obstructs, covers the vision of the seer. Um, although Alpoapi Megha, the cloud is small. It's, it's really tiny compared to the sun itself. Though it is tiny, it can effectively obscure our vision. Um, just like that, yatha achadayati eva, it as if covers the sun, eva, as if covers the sun, doesn't cover the sun, just obstructs us. Tatha jnanam, exactly like that, ignorance. What does ignorance do? Parichinam api, although it's limited. Yes, I remember, it's, I, I, I know it's, it's unreal. We, we said in that text, text number 33, I think, the only reality is Brahman. Ignorance downwards, everything is unreal. Limited, unreal, I know all of that. All it has to do is Atmanam Aparichinam, the unlimited non-samsari Atma, the non-dual existence consciousness bliss. The understanding of that is obscured in the, in the understanding of the onlooker, or the seer, the seeker. That's us. That's all it does. Sri Ramakrishna gave a very simple example, two examples. It's a very homely manner. 
he said, look, I'm sitting, he's sitting on that cot in Dakshineshwar. And then he held up his, the gamcha, the, the cloth, like a towel, like a very thin towel. He held it up in front of his face. Look, you can't see me now. And then I removed it, you can see me now. Uh, another example he gets from the Ramayana. So Rama, Sita, and Lakshmana are on their way to the, um, to the exile. And Rama walks ahead in the forest, and Sita is behind him, and Lakshmana is be uh, behind Sita. Now, uh, Lakshmana is like uh, the jiva, individual being. Rama is like is God, and Sita is doing the work of Maya, uh, covering the ultimate reality. It's only when Sita steps aside that Lakshmana, the individual being, can see, see uh, the reality. So that's another way of putting it. All right. Now, he gives a quotation to back it up, what he has just said. A very beautiful quote from a very beautiful hymn. This is from Hastamalaka Stotra. So what it says is, Ganachanna drishtim, Ganachanna markam. Just as a view, your vision is obscured by the cloud. And it seems, the fool says, the clouds have covered the sun. It's the fool's vision which has been abstract. Ati Moda, the fool. It, it says, the fool says that the, sky, the sun has become dim today. Nishpravang means dim. Just like that. Baddhavad bhati yomura drishti. Very inspiring language. That which seems to be bound and samsari for the vision of the ignorant, for the understanding of the ignorant person. I am a samsari. I am subject. I am this person. I am subject to so many problems. I am, I am unhappy. I am ignorant. I am miserable. I am a man or a woman and I am, sub, I am old and uh, unhappy and frustrated and subject to, you know, I am going to die soon. All of that, this is called Baddhavadvati, appears to be bound and limited in samsara. Whom? What, a, what, a, what language? Muradishte, in the view of the foolish. That very self, which seems to be bound in so many ways, in the, in the view of the foolish, Nityopalabdhi Swarupa Hamatma, it is ever revealed, most obviously, effortlessly revealed to the enlightened as the absolute reality. Nityopalabdhi is eternally, effortlessly, easily, all the time revealed as, as the Atma. Um, Satchidananda, existence, consciousness, please. So the enlightened person. So this is from Hastamalaka Stotra. And the I must tell you the story. Story goes like this. Um, Shankaracharya, on his tour of India, when he was going across to spread the message of Advaita Vedanta. Um, so he comes to this village. In that village lived a poor couple and um, so they uh, had a child and the child was very strange. And the, the boy didn't speak. And today, I, I'm sure there would be a host of diagnosis and we'll be helping them, but they had nothing, no way of knowing why the child wouldn't speak. Maybe it was autistic or something. And the parents were very unhappy because he never went to school, never spoke to anybody and grew up. Uh, maybe he was just preteen or something like that at that time and would just sit quietly under a tree or something like that and the boy would just not speak to anybody so they were very unhappy the parents when they heard that a great saint has come they thought maybe he can help 
and so they rushed to the to shankaracharya and his disciples and they bowed down and said this is our sorrow and shankaracharya says take me to the boy and they take him the boy is as usual sitting quietly under a tree the moment shankaracharya sees the boy uh, he is uh, he sees this is an enlightened person not even ready for enlightenment already enlightened fully enlightened being and shankaracharya bursts out in amazement and says to the boy uh, in sanskrit kastvam kuta ayata who are you where have you come from why have you come here what is your purpose what is your mission in life and for the first time dramatically the boy speaks obviously in perfect sanskrit and in and in poetry and he replies in 20 verses and one of the highest statements of non dual wisdom i think i have it here i can even read out a few of the verses and you'll see what it means so this is one of the uh, it's a hindi translation hastamalaka stotram he says the shankaracharya asks him kastvam shisho kuta ayata who are you child where have you come from ganta kim namate where are you headed and what's your mission in life kuto agato asi where have you come from etan mayoktam vada char char bhaka char bhaka tvam mat pritaye priti vivardhano asi to just to delight me uh, or child reply to these questions of mine and the boy replies naham manushya nacha deva yakshav na brahmana kshatriya vaishya shudra na brahmachari na grihivanastho bhikshur na chaham nijabodharupah he says i am not a human being i am not a god i am not a, any other kind of divine being yaksha i am not obviously a brahmin or a or a, or a warrior caste a kshatriya or the, the merchant class the vaishya or the laboring classes i am none of the castes four castes nor am i any of the four stations of life na brahmachari i am not a student na grihi i am not a householder are you a monk a hermit na vanastha i am not a forest dwelling hermit so you are a monk no i am not a monk also na na bhikshu chaham then who are you what are you nijabodha roopa i am pure consciousness i am the uh, the obvious awareness all the time shining forth and he goes on like this several verses till he comes to this last but one verse which is which is quoted here ganachanna drishti ganachanna marka just as a cloud appears to cover the sun just by obstructing the vision of the seer and the fool says sun is cloud uh, is dim today the sun is sun is dim not the sun which is dim your vision which is sun is shining forth as always even on the darkest most cloudy days it is by the sun of light of the sun you see the clouds also <laughs> so in the same way he says the fool who considers the self to be bound and suffering in samsara that very self i see to be ever revealed as pure consciousness bliss and ever revealed nitya upalabdhi all the time effortlessly experienced so very powerful verse shankaracharya named him hastamalaka acharya amalaka is the myrobalan fruit so it says your realization is like a fruit kept in the palm of your hand when you keep the fruit in the palm of your hand you can see it so so effortlessly for you the realization that you are the absolute is as effortless as that 
Um, so the master whose realization is as effortless as seeing a fruit in the palm of your hand. That's the meaning of the whole name, Hastamalaka Acharya. And he, Shankaracharya tells the parents, give this boy to me. What will you do with him? Give this boy to me. He will be really useful in my mission. And they agree. And of course, the boy sets up with Shankaracharya, becomes one of his closest disciples. So that's the story. Now, next. So this covering power. What's going on with this covering power? Anaya avritasyatmanaha kattritva bhuktritva vat sukhitva dukhitvaadi samsara sambhavana pibhavati yatha swagyane navritayam rajvam sarpavat sambhavana. The self covered by this concealing power of ignorance may become subject to samsara, relative existence, characterized by one's feeling as agent, the experiencing subject, happy, miserable, etc., just as a rope may become a snake due to the concealing power of one's ignorance. What has been said here? Once this covering power is in play, what happens? A rope is no longer seen as a rope. And it's the possibility of an error comes. Error cannot be there until ignorance comes. So ignorance, then error. There's a reality. Then there is ignorance. And then there is error. First, there's the ignorance, which covers and then projects or distorts. So the ignorance covers the rope, so to say. Because what does it mean covers the rope? We don't know the rope as a rope. But we know something is there. Then next comes the error. It's a snake. Somebody said it's a crack in the ground. Somebody said it's a garland which has been discarded from the temple. Something or the other. Similarly, in this way, the self, the ultimate reality which we spoke about, non-dual Brahman, avrita, being hidden from our experience, uh, our understanding. Now it seems it is, it is seen as a doer, an agent of action in connection with the mind, speech, body, the thinker of thoughts, the speaker of words, the doer of actions. What's wrong with that? The moment you do that, agent of actions, then the law of karma is put into, uh, it starts, you know, chugging away. It's uh, start, the wheels of karma start rotating. Then we are well and truly caught. Because those will give, the actions will give results and the agent will get the results of the action. Then the agent becomes bhoktritto, bhokta the experiencer, the enjoyer or sufferer of the results of the actions. You are the doer, and it is only just that you will get the results of your actions, both good and bad. Do good, the, it, this is called dharma. The result will be punya, merit. And the result of merit will be sukha, pleasant things will happen to you. And consciously, knowingly do uh, bad, evil, adharma, the result will be papa, demerit. And the result of papa is dukkha. A series of unpleasant things will happen to you. And you are called the bhokta, the experiencer. Experiencer of what? The results of your own actions. Often it's translated as enjoyer. I don't know what is translated here. Uh, subject, experiencing subject. That's correct. It's not always enjoyer. Often it is the sufferer more than the enjoyer. So bhoktitva is the one who enjoys and suffers the results of one's actions. Then what will happen? So what? Ah, sukhitva dukhitva, happy, sad, wanting happiness, but getting misery. This is called samsara, samsara, sambhavana, the possibility. Now this 
is now um, a clear possibility. This is going to happen now. Once the real self is covered. As yatha swagyanena avritayam rajvam sarpavat sarpatva sambhavana. As the um, rope is covered or obscured by one's ignorance, it can appear as a snake or something else. Now he's going to make another very important point for Vedanta philosophy. But before we go there, let me quickly take a look at the activity here in the chat. And so these are important points which are being made. These are uh, fundamental issues. Um, one more point I want to make today, but before that, let's quickly take a look. The chat first. Krishnamurti, Vedanta Sar is describing some constructs of Advaita philosophy. Vishishta Advaita will have their own construct. They are followers of both who have attained enlightenment. Different descriptions of the absolute truth. Does this mean that these philosophies are approximation? Correct. Enlightened people see the same truth regardless of philosophical differences. Correct. Um, that is what we would say. Especially I as a follower of Sri Ramakrishna or Vivekananda, we, uh, we know that, uh, that there are enlightened persons in all traditions, not just the different schools of Vedanta, but in Tantra and in Christianity and Islam. And, and, and um, you know, nowadays, without any particular tradition also, there are people, always there are people who are enlightened. And uh, they may have different intellectual frameworks for this. So Vedanta Sar is, is remember what it is. It is an introductory textbook for the school of Advaita Vedanta. So it gives you the intellectual framework necessary to understand the Upanishads from an Advaitic perspective. That's the purpose, very clear purpose of this book. So there are introductory books for Vishishta Advaita Vedanta, which will give you um, the tools for understanding the Upanishads from a Vishishta Advaitic perspective. Are they all interchangeable? Not really, it's not all that simple. Why would you prefer Advaita Vedanta? Because if you try out, if you take a look at Vishishta Advaita, Advaita or all, all the others, there's a very good reason why they are called theologies. They involve a very great amount of belief from the very beginning. You have to accept certain things. There is a God and uh, all powerful, omniscient, all, all of that. He said, but Swami, didn't you just talk about defining God and all that? We just did that. Yes, but remember, ultimately, what is going on here? Adhyaropa superimposition and desuperimposition. You're not allowed, we are not even being asked to take the conception of God here very seriously. Um, Advaita Vedanta can be regarded as a philosophy and uh, um, very rational, logical, based on experience. The rest are all theolog heavily theological. Um, yeah. But even then, even isn't Advaita Vedanta, as he would say, is it an approximation of the absolute truth? Yes, it is. Advaitins are bold enough to admit. Gaudapada himself, 1400 years ago in the Mandukya Karika, he clearly says, some people prefer a non-dualistic approach. Some people prefer a dualistic approach. So for the fact remains, the truth is beyond our conceptions of duality and non-duality. I will be, I will be sectarian and uh, 
go ahead out on a limb and say that I would anytime prefer the non-dual Advaitic approach to all the others. One reason being, though others have certain points of like great beauty, especially bhakti and belief and love and devotion, wonderful things are there, which Advaita will not tell us. But they are basically indefensible. In uh, today's world, if you're questioned, I can defend this. I really cannot. If you're critical and you're going to question that uh, from, an, uh, from a dualistic perspective, theistic perspective, I cannot defend it in all good conscience. I'll have to stop at a point and say, you have to believe this. So, for example, once in you know, front of the New York Public Library, there's, once in a while you come across well-meaning, um, naive evangelicals who try to convert me to Christianity. I don't know why they would think I'm a good target for conversion to Christianity. Uh, or um, taxi drivers, Uber drivers who want, want to give me a lecture about Islam. So usually I'm nice, but if I'm um, not feeling too well disposed, uh, I, uh, you know, like, John, verse number so-and-so says this. My answer would be, so? Let it say anything. Who cares? No, but God has said this. Who cares? What God? What are you talking about? Any dualistic system. You can put, uh, use um, Christopher Hitchens. <laughs> like, the simple answer to any or simple response to any kind of dualistic theistic talk would be what are you talking about it's just white noise talk about something that is within experience don't give me uh, a certain a belief system why would i accept your belief system god has said so saints have said so well saints and god has said many other things also in different religions which one will i accept why and why should i accept any of it at all so okay Peter says, you describe the sequence of Brahman, Maya, Ishwar, and Jiva. Where does Atman come in? You omitted Atman. Atman is the self. Brahman and Atman are the same thing. Yeah, Brahman is the Atman, always taken as interchangeable. We are talking, remember, this is what makes it uh, very convincing, very um, intimate and direct. Atman means the self. All the time we are talking about you. So when it says Brahman is the ultimate reality, everything else super superimposed, we are not talking about taking it and telling you to take something on, on trust. We are talking about you. You are the ultimate reality. And everything that you else you're experiencing about yourself and the world is superimposed upon you. So Brahman is the Atman. Shravani says total solar eclipse, tiny moon covering the sun. Correct. Leads to total darkness like night. Clouds are not effective, not as effective as right. Sounds like Nirvana Shatakam, correct. It is all like Nirvana Shatakam. Uh, Shravani says, what is the nature of this Dukkha according to Advaita? Is it an absence of bliss? What is the experience of Dukkha? Dukkha and Sukha are uh, pleasant and unpleasant experiences. Once one is identified with the body and mind, there's bound to be a lot that is unpleasant. Um, pain is unpleasant. Disease is unpleasant. Um, extreme heat and cold are unpleasant to the body. Uh, insults are unpleasant to the mind. Frustration and failure are unpleasant to the mind. Lack of satisfaction of desires are unpleasant to the mind. And equally, there are pleasant things to the body and mind. As long as we are identified with body and mind, we are subject to all of that. That is the nature of Dukkha. 
Rick says, what would enlightened people with different philosophical perspectives disagree with one another? That would suggest enlightenment doesn't confer absolutely clear universal understanding. And this is a difficult one. Would they dis disagree? Look at history. They have. So when they disagree, are they enlightened or not? They were enlightened. Now there are different ways of putting this. One approach is that all the ways that they have given are useful for the rest of us. Um, so Swami Tapasyanandaji, who wrote this beautiful book, Bhakti Schools of Vedanta, I, I highly recommend it. If you want to learn about the other schools of Vedanta, apart from Advaita Vedanta, that's an excellent book. Very balanced, not oversimplified, but a very balanced, informative book on the, all the different schools, Vishishtadvaita, Dvaita, and so on. But he writes a very interesting introduction to that book. He says, so if Advaita is so good, why were these bhakti schools at all taught? And notice that they all came, they developed after Advaita. You can't even say that first it was bhakti and then finally you realize Advaita. No, uh, Shankara was first, Ramanuja came later, Madhva came later, Nimbarka came later, Chaitanya came later. So if Advaita is all that great, why was so much bhakti taught after Advaita Vedanta? So he says, see the approach to bhakti, bhakti is useful towards enlightenment. But the approach to bhakti in Advaita is very patronizing. The Advaitic approach to bhakti is devotion is good for, as a good preparation for non-dual enlightenment. So it's like a base camp, but non-dual enlightenment is the peak of Mount Everest. Now that's not particularly inspiring. Who would want to remain in base camp? One would want to, if we're going to climb a mountain, you would want to go to the peak of the mountain. But suppose my whole attitude is devotional. I'm not at all, I don't, I'm not particularly interested in your so-called rationality and logic and, um, and uh, you know, the hard problem of consciousness and what Advaita can do or cannot do. Suppose I don't care about any of that. I'm very devotional. Uh, I, uh, I enjoy the sense of the sacred, uh, the sacred music, the presence of God, the sense that I'm an individual who loves and serves my Lord. That's a very beautiful thing. Now, it does not help me to say, when you tell me, that's base camp. Quickly move on to the, to come to Vedanta Sara. No. Can one attain full enlightenment by being like that? Being dualistic, devotional. Not at all coming to your non-dualism. Turns out you can. Advaita won't admit that. Advaita will say that's preliminary. Advaita doesn't dismiss it, but it's preliminary. It's useful, good. But you have to come to Advaita. So you'll notice. I asked this question to Rupert, in the, if those who attended the Rupert Spira uh, dialogue. So I asked this question. Rupert is a thoroughgoing non-dualist. So I asked this question. There are two approaches to devotional religion, dualistic religion. One approach is that all of these are true. One approach is that the dualistic religion is a good preparation, but one must come to non-dualistic realization as soon as possible. That's one approach. Second approach is one need not at all come to non-dualistic realization. Just by remaining with dualistic religion, one of the many varieties of dualistic religion across the world, one can get full satisfaction. There's nothing more remains. Would you, and so and these are all different alternative paths. Dualistic theistic approach is an alternative to uh, non-dualistic uh, approach. Which one would you pick? And as I thought, he immediately said that I would go for the first one. That dualistic theistic religion may be good, can be admitted, as a preliminary. You have to come to non-dualism. So that's the classical Advaitic approach. He's absolutely right there. 
But one approach can be like Sri Ramakrishna's approach that all of these uh, can ultimately, because none of these are ultimately absolutely true. What is true is Brahman. But, but not Advaita Vedanta as a philosophy is not, not the absolute truth. What is the absolute truth is Brahman. And all of these can take you to that realization. After that realization, depending upon your particular framework through which you have gone, you might feel, an enlightened being might feel that his or her framework is validated. See, I was told about Vishnu in Vaikuntha. I went through these processes and I felt the presence of God. What else can it be except Vishnu in Vaikuntha? And therefore, all my uh, the philosophy I've been taught is correct. But generally also, you will notice, I've seen, I don't know if they were enlightened or not, I've seen the case of spiritually advanced seekers from different schools of Vedanta. I've seen, I've met such monks and practitioners. They tend to become pretty liberal as they go higher. Uh, they will teach the path they know and they have practiced, but um, they also begin to understand it could work from that side also. So um, they, that's one sign of uh, spiritual growth. Yeah. Perhaps they do have absolutely clear and universal understanding, but only different semantics. Yes, we could say that. Their clarity, they definitely have clarity. In fact, I've seen sometimes the opposite also happens. A certain loss of liberality also happens. I've seen academic scholars or beginners like us, we read this and that, we have different, we have knowledge of different systems and we are also liberal people, open. But I've seen practitioners in at least a couple of cases, I know they have had spiritual breakthroughs and they become a little intolerant of other paths. Why? I, I know why. Because what they have found in their particular practice is so vividly real for them. And they clearly, they see that it, it's irresistible. The power of that is irresistible. And the rest of it seems sort of, um, uh, you know, stale. Uh, it uh, seems dim by comparison. So even if, so if they are not uh, liberal to begin with, they would not be liberal at the end of it also. I mean, I'm always reminded of someone as great as St. Francis of Assisi. Wonderful. But you also know that he went off to Egypt to convert the Muslims. Obviously, he then fallen and all, convert them back to the right path, which is Catholic Christianity. He was very lucky that the Sultan there was a, a very liberal and a sagacious person who saw this monk for, who came to convert him into Christianity and save him from his fallen Islamic ways, who saw this person for a sincere saint and liked him and sent him packing back with his head still on his shoulders. Um, so why would you think that St. Francis being an enlightened, was he enlightened? Absolutely, I have no doubt about it. Why would you still think that he wants to convert Muslims into Christians? Because of, um, remember, that was several hundred years ago. His idea of Islam would be like a distorted religion, not a true faith. His idea, and enforced by his realization, would be further enforced. His idea of being a staunch Christian Catholic um, would be further enforced by his vivid spiritual experience. That is obviously true. And the rest of it, therefore, must be false. 
I'm sure if he went through a nice period of education in Christ, in Islamic mysticism, he would find the same beauty there itself, and it would probably broaden out. Yeah. Um, could Jesus be regarded as a bhakt? Okay, I think I skipped over something. What you were saying about different traditions having enlightened being for an enlightened Christian, for example, and an enlightened Buddhist, wouldn't the experience of the absolute understanding be so different that it is contradictory? Both think they're correct and the other is wrong. That's true. The moment you express it in terms, a personal God, all loving, omnipotent, omniscient, personal God, I have experienced this God. And the Buddhist comes and says, I have experienced the ultimate reality, which is a void, which is emptiness. <laughs> but again, if you look at the language of the mystics, um, Saint John of the Cross or the Dark Knight of the Soul, and so on, um, the cloud of unknowing, cloud of unknowing, it could very well, with just a change in the phrase, phrasing, it could become a Buddhist text. <laughs> yeah, the mystics are much closer than um, theology or doctrines. In Gita, the twelfth chapter defines bhakti yoga in a very different way. A mixture of karma yoga, upasana and then knowledge. Yeah, that is true. That's Anuradha. Oh, no wonder. Anuradha is a staunch non-dualist. So, <laughs> that what you are saying defines bhakti yoga in a very different way. Mixture of karma yoga, upasana and then knowledge. That is from Shankaracharya's commentary. The, try reading Prabhupada's uh, uh, the Gita as it is, or a commentary from one of the uh, dualistic, theistic religions, you know, a Vaishnavite commentary. Could Jesus be regarded as Bhakta? Definitely. The culmination of Bhakti is that a Bhakta can see the entire world as the form of the Ishta Devata Raman. That is the form of oneness with the, with the form, not Nirguna Brahman. True. Um, Simran says, important to distinguish the difference between experiences of awakening, Saturn, and actual enlightenment. Jivan Mukta would be free from the imagined world of thought and therefore not have an argument with other philosophical systems as there is in no reality to thought. Thought or chitta is also maya prior to that. Yes, it's important to know that we two students are perceiving from that which is beyond the mind, from mind. So there is a need to, at the very least, at least a mind is trying to perceive a reality that is beyond it. So it's tricky. Yes, that is true. Um, Swamiji Pranam, you mentioned that ignorance in individual jiva is the seed form as in deep sleep and not the body and mind. Isn't body and mind also my? Yes, but what I mentioned, it's to come. It has not yet come. See, we have not come across mind and body. All that will be produced soon. Um, so the mind, body, external universe have not been introduced yet. Sri Chaitanya Deva followed devotion and bhakti, correct? Rick says, and, and tend to avoid the word enlightenment because it has a static ultimate connotation. Just about everyone we regard as enlightened, such St. Francis still has dimensions of his life in which growth is possible. Correct. I agree there. From an, un, from an Advaitic perspective, there is a fundamental breakthrough, which is essential when that reality becomes reality for you. After that, the individual mind and intellect and the personality which is now an appearance, not your ultimate reality, but it still continues to be, you know, there are dark recesses which continue to be uh, illumined by your realization. Um, it's, a, it's a process. And if certain work has not been done, Jivan Mukti Viveka, for example, strongly recommends 
uh, intense dose of spiritual practices after this advaitic breakthrough what does that mean why is that necessary if at all it's necessary for that for that uh, personality and to fully manifest this realization just because you have made a breakthrough does not mean you are fully uh, able to manifest that's why i like swami vivekananda's definition of religion manifestation of the divinity already within us he doesn't say knowledge of the divinity or being enlightened about the divinity already within us manifestation manifestation means in action in thought in word do you have you become a perfected saint in your life that that still might not be the case even after uh, breakthroughs spiritual breakthroughs that is a continuous process swami brahmananda he said nirvikalpa samadhi is the beginning of spiritual life <laughs> what does that mean okay just i wanted to make one point people have raised the hand so then let me not make that point it's an important metaphysical point uh, which we'll see next time and just in order to not leave you hanging the point will be that how is brahman the cause of this universe so what is a cause what are the different types of causes and in what sense brahman is the cause in what sense do people do theistic religions see god as the cause of the universe and how is that different from advaita vedanta where brahman is seen as the cause of this entire manifested universe that point will be taken up next let's see the people who raised their hands namaste swami ji namaste swami ji when uh, gaudapada and shankaracharya when they talk about uh, the drushyam the concept of if i experience something uh, that's not brahman uh, although they say it unconditionally uh, looks like they're only talking to the jeevas right not for, to the jeevan muktas because jeevan mukta everything they see and experience is brahman alone is, is that correct from which yes and no suppose i tell you that um, the bracelet and the necklace and uh, um, the ring that's not gold that's true in a certain sense the ornament the name and the shape and the function of the ornament is not gold it's the substance of the ornament which is gold and i'm saying that that's not gold to point out to you that the underlying substance a necklace is not equal to gold or a bracelet is not equal to gold but the reality of the necklace and the bracelet are gold now because you know what is a necklace and what is gold this makes sense to you now for the enlightened person also the gold enlightened person who knows what gold is like like you when i say to you that necklace itself is not gold you understand you that you what you understand is yes name necklace is not gold the form of the necklace is not gold but the substance of the necklace is gold you understand that but a person who does not understand what gold is at all will find it mystifying that uh, you are saying that necklace is not gold uh, bracelet is not gold ring is not gold yet the reality of necklace bracelet and ring are the same one and the same gold what is it what are you talking about how can necklace and bracelet and ring be the same thing they are all obviously different no it is the same thing yeah so when we say adhyaropa and apavada they don't have any effect on jivan mukta no they don't they don't so this means now probably they are see experiencing brahman through all these names and forms yes the so jivan mukta experiences the non dual reality through all all this duality when you have duality and you talk about duality this world which we are experiencing does it make sense to the jivan mukta of course 
you say i am drink i am thirsty i want a glass of water the jivan mukta will not respond by say who is thirsty what is water there is no water there is no thirst there is no glass it's all brahman no no jivan mukta will ever say that it makes perfect sense to jivan mukta but there is something that makes sense to jivan mukta which does not make sense to us that how is you know um how is the glass and the water and the drinker all of that is one reality brahman that does not make sense to us because we don't know that underlying we don't know the gold which constitutes the ornaments when ridayaram uh, this this madman came to dakshineshwar seemed like a crazy person and uh, sri ramakrishna said look he is an enlightened being so ridayaram uh, sri ramakrishna's nephew and attendant he ran after that madman and uh, said please give me some advice this is a story how that madman seemed to throw stones at him to dissuade him finally ridayaram would not give up and said give me some advice and the madman said when the water of the ganga and the water of this ditch is one and the same to you then you have achieved enlightenment what does it mean how can something dirty and pure be one and the same thing how can the water in the ganga and in the ditch water be the same thing because he is not talking about water he is not talking about ditch water or ganga water he is not talking about pure or impure he is talking about the underlying reality thank you so would adhyaropa apavad the superimposition the superimposition make sense to an enlightened person in the sense yes the enlightened person would be uh, can easily use it to enlighten others as a technique yes who's next uh, good evening samajay good evening um uh, uh, then does it uh, is it right that uh, when we speak about the jivan mukta is essentially like educated trained ego that knows that uh, it's not i it continues to function in the world but it knows the true reality uh, that it's not like there is no more this association whatever happens there is an i label uh, attached to it in a strong sense that this is me or mine correct correct uh, it still continues to function yes many people think that well, the ego will go away but the, yes but in what sense i often make fun of that the ego will go away is it like a failure after enlightenment do you have a heart attack or a stroke some part of your body will your liver or your heart stop functioning no then uh, will you lose memory no so if all parts of your body and my mind are functioning why won't the ego function the ego will also function but you realize you are not the ego the knowledge is there in the mind itself you realize that you are not the ego so the, um, that yeah. so the ego realizes that the ego is not the i it's the... not that the ego realizes you realize you did not know your own nature earlier and you all you knew knew of yourself was the ego i and the ego uh, were one and the same thing earlier now i realize i am not the ego that's a very interesting thing shankaracharya says ahankara na aham i am not i how how can you say that it's because the ego points to something beyond the ego you are no longer limited to the ego and then in this particular transition is sort of uh, is that the mystical uh, portion of vedanta non dualistic vedanta because you cannot really explain it yes but let's not call it mystical um uh, let's just say it's an intuitive jump that comes it just becomes clear suddenly i mean this this and but there is no like in the in the knowledge system of vedanta there is no description of this mechanism right Because oh it is 
that's there. Very precise, step-by-step -step description of what happens. How is this different from other kinds of knowledge? Everything will be described at, at, towards the end of this book. Ah, okay. That is called Brahmakaravritti, the final cognition in the form of Brahman. Okay. So it is a cognition. So, so then they, why do you say it's beyond mind? And that will be the question. In what sense is enlightenment beyond the mind? In what sense does enlightenment need the mind? What is the exact process of enlightenment? And that everything will be described. Thank you. Who's next? Shravani? Yes. Oh, uh, yes, Swamiji. I, uh, I was just wondering that you say that Jivan Mukta sees the movie as a movie, whereas we don't. We see the movie as a movie. That's how we all enjoy movies. <laughs> I mean, this I'm joking. Yeah, I understand what you're trying to say. Yes. <laughs> okay. So, uh, but then uh, when, uh, like, in that analogy, we are not immersed in that movie. Right? We are not a character, but they are actually playing a role also in that movie. And oh. again, going back to, I think you didn't answer the second part of the question, or at least I didn't catch it. Like, how this dukkha, this aunt, is, it is in a mind, but how is their experience of dukkha? Is it, they see that the mind is not me, something like that? Is, is Correct. That very, very clear description is given by Sri Ramakrishna. When Hari Maharaj asks him, yeah. are you suffering? You remember the famous, famous mm -hmm. incident when Sri Ramakrishna says that, uh, um, that yes, there's a pain here, I cannot eat. So is he lying or is he pretending? No. He is experiencing it just like any cancer patient would experience it. Then what's the difference? The difference comes next when Hari Maharaj says, but sir, I see that you are in great bliss. And Sri Ramakrishna bursts out laughing and says, oh, the rascal has found me out. So in what sense are you in great bliss in the midst of cancer, which is very real at its own level? At the level, relative level of the world, it's real. It's only when you see yourself, one sees oneself as the cancer patient and also realizes cancer patient, world, all of this is the movie. I am the screen of the absolute. Both are clear to it, to you simultaneously. Even when they're playing a role in that movie, though, right? They have a character in that movie. Yes. So movie is, uh, see, uh, movie analogy, you are riding it to the death. So you <laughs> it, let it go. Okay. You can now take up, nowadays there, is a, there are virtual realities in which you can actually enter yes. in a virtual reality. Think about it that way. Yeah, there was a very nice description. See, what, is, what would it be like? We get so absorbed in seeing a movie. We get lost in the story and the emotions. Now imagine we lose, uh, it's not just sight and sound. It's also smell and touch. So they're working on it actually. <laughs> in MIT Media Labs, I got a tour of some of the cutting edge technology. And there are things floating about in the air. If you touch them, you actually feel a sense of touch. How they do it, they call, they've got something called haptic sensors and haptic stimulus. They, they, they fire little bursts of air towards your um, skin. So you feel you're actually touching something, but there's nothing in the air at all. You're holding an object. So touch, suppose touch is simulated. Heat, cold, pressure, smell, taste. Next, suppose, so for all of this, so how immersive would it be? A five-dimensional, five senses all fed. Now next, suppose you lose all sense of your body sitting in the chair. You are entirely into the movie. Next, suppose 
you are not only a character in the movie your thoughts are the thoughts of that person you are no longer have the thoughts of shravani the movie seer so you have the thoughts of the person in the movie you would become that person it's only when the movie switched off suddenly you will get a shock that i am sitting here i am shravani i am not that person in the movie right so they they see themselves as a screen i mean again going back to they do not identify no they don't identify while fully experiencing all of it they do not identify because they, they see the reality shining forth so much it's not abstract it's not abstract at all for them for them the world what we consider to be a real world is more abstract and brahman is the real, concrete reality nisargadatta was once asked so you experience brahman all the time yes so how do you experience brahman all the time is it like some kind of abstraction thought concept philosophy he is not at all look up in the mumbai sky at that time um, the sun was shining and also the moon you know sometimes you get the moon in the horizon while the sun is also up look at the sun blazing forth yeah. unmistakable and the faint horizon the faint outline of the moon on the horizon that also revealed by the light of the sun for me brahman is like the sun and what you call the world body mind everything is like that faint moon effortlessly so that's what hastamalaka was talking about 1400 years ago it's effortlessly there for the enlightened person not abstraction not conception thank you maharaj i i just uh, uh, i'm listening to sami pitamarananda ji's like talks on karma yoga mm. and he mentioned something stuck in my mind i thought i should mention he said that the ignorance is the connection between subject and object and when you cut that the knowledge cuts that uh, cut and mm. it's kind of stuck with me that is really very compact way of saying uh am i i just wanted to have your it's good that's a good way of putting it and what is the connection what is it made of that i did not understand actually because he just uh, mentioned the answer is this what is that connection made of is it actually a rope which ties you to the subject to the object is it some kind of uh, he said thought? it was ignorance yeah. ignorance is the connection so what is that connection what is it made of so ignorance is made of what so i'm just saying because once uttarakhand sadhu put it very nicely he said bevkufi matra hai it is stupidity is the only connection there is no connection whatsoever no connection at all no connection whatsoever that's the meaning of ignorance being the connection um, there is no connection at all it seems but it is actually the way he said it is easy to easy to visualize it that way we if you remember we have studied it all very precisely drig drishya viveka yes what is uh, the connection drishya, between drishya. sakshi sakshi pure consciousness reflected consciousness and the mind so sakshi is is not connected to those two at all it's just ignorance good thank, thank you that, for adding that 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 really helps the understanding correct thank you. correct thank you so much rodrigo says but then experience ultimately transform the person into a different person yes the person you are no longer the person but that person which all of us see as the enlightened person would that person be transformed yes certainly certainly So I'm very kind to say, as a fool emerges from that as a saint. <laughs> All right, let's bring this to a close. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tat Sat.
ಶ್ರೀರಾಮಕೃಷ್ಣಾರ್ಪಣಮಸ್ತು